Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's Roxanne Durhach. Thanks for tuning in again this week to Authentic Living with Roxanne. So today I have a special colleague, Mark Black. Mark and I um, belong to the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. Mark has been a longtime member that, that I've been uh, involved for about seven, about geez, six, seven years now. But Mark, I know, has been around for a long time. Mark, so thanks for coming on today and spending the time with us. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. It's good to be here. Well, Mark's got um, a fascinating story. And when I heard his story um, with our events, they were flit by each other, I would say. <laughs> we chat. And then, of course, you know, with, with all of us getting together, we were last in Calgary together. Um, I would hear snippets of his story. And I know that at some point we were going to have him on the podcast. So Mark is a double lung heart and double lung transplant uh, survivor. Um, I'm not going to say thriver is probably a better word to use there. Um, and then, you know, in 2002, and he's, get this, I was, we were just chatting about this and has ran four marathons since. And we were just chatting about my, I would say, dislike of, of <laughs> running. Um, and Mark uh, runs a training and development company um, where he the bulk of his business is keynote speaking, uh, training, and coaching. He works with the association markets mostly, but some does some corporate. So, Mark, uh, thanks for coming on uh, today. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. This is fun. So, Mark uh, has also done something phenomenal as well. We're both in that launch mode, so I can understand how many things mm. you have flying around in your head. I just did my formal launch on Saturday and it's uh, it's a lot. And he has uh, written a book, The Resilience Roadmap, which I really want to chat about uh, today. But Mark, let's let's just talk about you, right? And Mark has a, you know, uh, a full life. He has a family. He lives, you live out east, right? Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Moncton, New Brunswick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, New Brunswick. So tell me, like, with the, the medical concerns that you had, was it was it a, a congenital, like at birth, that you had these issues, or was it something that kind of developed, Mark, as you got as you started to grow? So born with a congenital heart defect, open heart surgery at several hours old, but ultimately uh, in and a in a childhood of various challenges, uh, mostly mostly fairly easy to manage. Um, but always on medications and lots of medical follow-up and all those things for, for my childhood and early adult years. And then it all kind of came to a crux when I was 23. My condition de deteriorated uh, rather quickly. And in the span of three months, I lost a third of my body weight, became oh. very easily winded, short of breath, went to see our doctor. And within about a month, I was, so I was admitted to hospital actually almost immediately. And after a series of tests, within about a month of that time, we were told that I needed a heart and double lung transplant 
ASAP. So that was uh, obviously a big shock to the system. I mean, we knew that transplant was coming at some point in my future, but the window for when that was going to happen was always years into the future. And all of a sudden it was now. And, uh, and I was very fortunate that I was even accepted on the transplant list because I was fairly ill and that's not always possible. Uh, but my, uh, my doctor made that happen for us and I was put on the transplant list, uh, in Toronto and I had to move to Toronto to be put on the list because of the logistics of lung transplant specifically hearts will last a fair bit longer from donor to recipient than lungs do. So we had to live within a two hour radius of the transplant center. So we moved from New Brunswick to Ontario, my dad and I, I left my, we're a family, I'm from a family of six. So my three younger brothers and my mom stayed home in Moncton, dad and I moved to Toronto, was put on the waiting list and waited nearly a year before receiving the transplant in September of 2002. Wow. So a way like, so obviously, um, so necessary, but, um, Again, your family and the support that you had from the beginning, um, amazing that uh, that um, they could do it, right? Because you, you think it, we're living in this part of the world as well, Marco. Like, how privileged are we to be able to have that? And I mean, yeah. in Toronto, I live in Niagara, so um, and even Hamilton, right? Like, we have such phenomenal services mm-hmm. that could get you, uh, and then to get you, like we're talking double lung and a heart. Like, so, so how did it work? Did, did they kind of make sure that all of it was happening at the same time or did they have to do one and you recover and then get strong enough to be able to do the others? Yeah, no, it all, all happened at once, all from the same donor. It, it, it essentially has to, in order to even have a, a hope of dealing with the potential rejection issues afterwards. If you're dealing with one extra immune system from another person, that's one thing to be dealing with, with two would be very difficult. Uh, so it all comes from the same donor and, uh, I was, we were told when we were told I needed the transplant, we were also told the chances of it happening were almost zero. So it was kind of a double, wow, double-edged sword, uh, both because lung transplants are fairly rare, much more common today than they were 20 years ago. But when I was listed, they hadn't done a single double lung transplant, uh, single heart lung transplant rather in Canada the entire year in 2001. In 2002, yeah. I'm one of three or four that happened in the country. So pretty rare. And then because of my stature, I'm 4'11", I weigh about 120 pounds. I'm not an ideal candidate because most donated organs come from uh, adult men, actually, statistically. Uh, and their lungs would not fit in my ribcage, right? So uh, the donor pool for me was going to be significantly smaller than the average a sized person so there were lots of the odds were stacked against us and yet at the same time when you're told your only option for long-term survival is to do it the odds don't really matter to you much so so let's talk you're you know i think of me at 23 you know i was like you know doing the typical you know early entry into adulthood university blah, 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 at U of T kind of, you know, and trying to figure out the world. Um, what was your mindset at this time? I mean, you, you know, you come into this world, of course, we don't know about health. And how did that impact you and how you kind of thought about things? And were you sickly all, a lot? 
along the way, Mark, or did you kind of have a lot of really good health? Until, yeah, I, you know, I had a, I had a lot of fairly good health, and you know I think one of the one of the blessings or benefits of congenital illness, if there are any, is that you to a certain degree don't know any different. Mm. So what was my normal was my normal. It, it didn't occur to me until I was like I remember being six or seven years old at the beach one day and realizing that not everybody else. Had a zipper. I used to call it my my zipper, my scar down the front, down my chest. Oh, from uh, from my, from my heart surgery. Oh my goodness! Right? So here you are thinking, oh, just, yeah, oh, just like well, that's yeah, it's just it's it's, it's always it's always been there, yeah, uh, yeah. right? And so biannual cardiology follow ups were whatever what I did. It's, it was just part of the routine, and so in that way, and and a lot of that comes from my parents doing an incredible job of managing me uh something you don't appreciate until you're a parent yourself and i can kind of right. look back and go course, oh my god sure yeah you know, the the decisions that they made i'm sure they would say they didn't make all the right decisions but they sure made a lot of good ones and uh and i think the most fundamental one and my mom tells a story it came from a veteran nurse when she was mom was had just delivered me or shortly thereafter uh, and this nurse essentially the wisdom was treat him as normally as you possibly can treat him as close to a quote unquote normal child as as you can because he'll have enough physical challenges but if you treat him differently he's also going to have a lot more mental and emotional challenges that don't need to be there and so they you know mom and dad did that they were both i don't know if it was the they're both phys ed teachers by by trade and i think that helped in the sense that we were being active and playing sports was a natural part of growing up in our house. And I was going to be able to, I was going to do whatever I was physically able to do, even though that probably required them to look the other way sometimes when I was pushing myself beyond maybe what was comfortable. Oh boy, here, here he goes again. Yeah. <laughs> Pretend we're not going to see that. That's, right. That's so they, so really, I would say, Mark, that this this whole concept of when we think about resiliency was something around you that your parents, great guidance by that nurse, but ultimately, I mean, these are parents that now have a sick child. Mm -hmm. and now they have to, you know, I always say put on your big girl pants kind of thing and not show you any fear, which I'm sure, like probably as an adult, you could probably talk to them now parent to parent and say oh my goodness how did you guys do it yeah already that was they were teaching you some of the or demonstrating through osmosis some of the the basics about you know you know deal with what you got and make the best of it from a very yes. very young age yeah no absolutely absolutely um the mindset was like growth mindset although it was never labeled that in the house was certainly just innately a part of our upbringing the idea of just mm -hmm. like figure it out and solve the problems as they arise and we'll deal with the next thing when the next thing comes but we're not going to waste time and energy worrying about things that we can't control and don't know if or when will happen uh it was always just kind of like let's deal with what we're you know let's live one day at a time so to speak not i mean not in a reckless what's one of the things i talk about in in my work as well is is that idea of breaking life down to the manageable piece of right here and right now without being, you know, reckless, not live every day like it's your last day, but 
you know, let's have a plan and also understand that the plan may not work out and we're just going to live this day as best as we can. Well, which ultimately, if you, you know, if you think about it, with my background as a psychotherapist and, you know, I've seen every iteration of possibility in my career prior to, you know, starting to speak and train. And, uh, you know, I literally, um, I'll give you an example. Like I was, when I was with the Metro Toronto police, I remember I got called in and I was responding um, to a massive accident where people had lost two children. And, um, and then the surgeon comes in and says, no, two already dead. And he says to the parents who I'm supporting, cause I'm at sick kids. So by the way, how many children do you have? And I went, Oh my goodness. I was like, wow. I was, you know, trying to think that I would not want to lunge over the table because I was every ounce of what those poor parents were going through. And, yeah. you know, that element, right. Like of what your parents would have gone through or what those parents that I was dealing with was dealing with is that they have to dig really deep to be able to make sense of, you know, something that adverse. Right. And mm -hmm. um, so resilience has always been, I think probably why I picked the kind of work, you know, that I, I picked. Um, so you got the zipper. So they're telling you how to kind of, you know, not go probably poke everybody in the chest to see where it is. <laughs> um, and, and, and then you're already developing the mindset where there's some struggles, even though they were strong with you, that you yeah, kind of go. Many, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Many, many struggles along the way. I mean, so, uh, as an, as a young child from, you know, five, six years old to 13, 14, uh, I was heavily involved in athletics and overcame my small stature to be pretty competitive in soccer and, and basketball, ironically. And then at 14, my condition took one of the several turns or deteriorations over a period of time. And I went to a standard biannual checkup and the doctor said, eh, you developed a, a, another issue here with your heart rhythm and pushing your body to the limits like this is, is really getting to be dangerous. So we need you to not do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a 13 year old, whose identity was largely tied to being an athlete, that was a big deal. And I, I would never have articulated it that way then, but in retrospect, it wasn't just the not playing sports. It was the fact that that's who I was. Well, who was I going to be now if I wasn't doing that? Uh, and so we had to work, you know, mom and dad helped me work through what are the other outlets? What are other things that you might do? Ironically, I ended up turning to theater, which in the long run uh, has served me very well as a speaker because I got used to being on a stage and speaking in front of a lot of people. You were prepping all along. That's right. In by, the, by, was, the, by the side door, not realizing that this adversity was actually developing a skill that, you know, the perfect alignment that you end up, you know, speaking and what, what, an, you know, what a, what a lovely thing to come out of something that was definitely scary and adverse in, in every sense of the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so my, summary of what resilience is, is that it is not bouncing back, which I think is the most common sort of analogy we're given uh, be, for a couple of reasons. One, we, there's no such thing as going back, right? So to say like, we're going to, we're going to return to some previous existence that is gone is a pretty faulty goal to start with. 
And so it's not about bouncing back. It's about growing through. It's about saying, how do I get through whatever I need to get through? And we all have a story. We all have things that we have to overcome. And maybe how do I not just get through it, but do I get through it in a way where I am a better version of me than I was before? How do we do that post-traumatic growth thing, right? And say, I might not have chosen that adversity, but I was forced to face it. How can I use it in some constructive way? And so that was one example of something that it wasn't intentionally saying, okay, I'm going to be a speaker one day, let's do this. But in retrospect, it was absolutely beneficial that I was forced to find this other outlet because it provided skills that it would prove helpful later on. So let's talk about mindset, right? We talked a little bit about, you know, early um, context, your parents setting the stage, I think, within your family system to kind of really bolster your siblings and yourself. And I'm sure your siblings often, they had to obviously deal with the fact that their sibling is not well. Mm-hmm. Um, as you go along, tell me how, like you said, your your definition is it's not how long are you going to sit down, lay down till you get back up, but it's, it's recognizing that how am I going to learn something that's I'm going to take forward in my life? What, what other things, like when you think about, you know, when people go through a tough time, right? And, you know, in your book, I know you talk about some principles, but how do you, um, let's say someone and you're coaching them or, you know, and, and like you said, to all, all of us have a story, right? And we are like, oh my goodness, I'm worried about myself, but geez, I just heard Mark's story. Right. How do you kind of hold that space, Mark, for them? Um, because I'm sure they're like floored by your story to really have them kind of, stay focused on on what they need to do for themselves certainly in my speaking and and then you know my coaching as well i've i've had to figure out exactly what you said so i I didn't it didn't occur to me until i began to analyze the post-event conversations with people that my experience could become a barrier to that if i didn't contextualize it properly so without my intending it people would listen and go, well, that's really inspiring, but that's him, not me. Mm-hmm. And so now I have to, I'm very explicit at the beginning of any program I do to say to people, I, I want you to do your best to connect your story to my story, to see your challenges in my challenges, to know that I understand we all have a story. And that comparison is rarely helpful. Uh, in the sense of saying, well, like you're, this is my pain and that's your pain and yours is worse or, or, or vice versa. What's the benefit in comparing that? They're two totally unique experiences and we have each of us a unique experience that we bring to the, that, to that challenge and a unique set of skills to bring to that challenge. And so what might be difficult for me might be easy for you and vice versa. So let's just put the comparison away, first of all. And then let's say, can you, whatever you can glean from this that's useful to you, let's use that. And if there's things that aren't particularly relevant, that's okay too. I don't profess to have the solution for everybody. Um, But here are some things that have worked for me. So that's kind of the context. Uh, and, And then I think the hardest and most critical piece of the process for all of us, myself included, is one of the, one of the guideposts in the book excuse me, is about acceptance. It's about figuring out, one, 
what parts of what are going on right now am I resisting in some way? Mm-hmm. Right. So this thing has happened. In my case, you're told you need a transplant um, or you're told you can't play sports or whatever the case is, or, or COVID happens and you're a professional speaker who makes all their money in front of people and all of a sudden you can't do that. Yeah. What parts of this situation do I need to just accept and let go of instead of trying to fight them so that I have more of my resources available to move forward with, with this new reality, to, to adapt constructively, which is the next piece of the framework. And, and that's what I'm trying to help people do in a, in a context of a presentation too, is saying, look, this was my story. What are the parts of your story that you need to let go of accept acknowledge don't don't pretend they weren't there they were there they happened or they are happening we don't want to minimize them but we have to say at some point okay now what am i going to do about this Mm -hmm. i would say that a lot of us um or people that i've worked with um either coaching or in my when i was in practice is that when we're going through it oftentimes it's hard to reflect it when you're in the thick of it right like when you're at the bottom of the you know, barrel and you're like looking up saying, why me? It's kind of hard to get those connections until mm-hmm. you kind of really post event um, or as you're going through something, you have to get quiet. Like I talk a lot about in my book, right? I talk a lot about, you know, without that space where you can really, maybe as it's tough, it's hard, but as you get quiet, um, then you kind of really start to make like you said, the connections, right? Hmm. But oftentimes our world is so busy and our minds are so busy that, you know, we, t- we talk about it, but how many people actually stop to do that? I mean, most people don't unless it's critical. Do you find that when you're coaching people that it's something that you really have to talk to them about what kind of things they need to do to really make those connections? Like you said, you know, like what can you learn? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, I love that, that idea. Um, it's not something that I talk about in the book, although it absolutely happened for me. Uh, the last six months of waiting for the transplant, I spent in hospital. And so there was a lot of time mm-hmm. to be quiet and to reflect and to think and mm-hmm. to absorb and to process and all of those things. Um, and that was, that was very important. Uh, certainly, certainly for the acceptance part of that puzzle, because if we're doing, doing, doing all the time, then it's very easy to distract ourselves in feeling like we're making progress and we haven't really dealt with this thing over here that we need to deal with. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. And, and, and when I'm working with clients, I guess one of the things I try and do is just provide a sounding board and sometimes an outside perspective where it's appropriate to say, have you thought about, or, mm-hmm. you know, here's what I'm seeing. Are you like, does that resonate with you? Um, because we're in the middle of a crisis or, or a challenging situation. It's very hard to see the forest for the trees, right? It's very hard to see the bigger picture and a little bit of perspective can sometimes be incredibly helpful and in just contextualizing what's going on. And maybe this isn't, as big of a problem as I perceive it to be, or it is a big problem, but here's some things that I might be able to do about it that I couldn't see until I took a kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of it. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we, we don't, I mean, I think we should have like resilience one-on-one, like starting from, 
<laughs> from, you know, like JK all the way up through, right? Like we should be teaching these things like we do like algebra and all those other things that sometimes most of us don't use because the ability to just recognize and understand we have bodies, we have brains and we have, you know, hearts. So we have to learn how to kind of cope with all of those. Now you, in this new book, um, The Resiliency Roadmap, you have seven guideposts or guidelines that you talk about. And I'm going to just read them off really quickly. And maybe you can kind of, you know, tell the audience a little bit about this acknowledgement, agency, acceptance, adaptation, aspiration, action, and assessment. So those are the seven uh, guides or guideposts that uh, Mark uses. So Mark, um, if someone's listening and they're like, okay, well, I'm listening to you guys and, you know, and I'm, you know, Mark's been through a thing and Roxanne does this or whatever, but they're like, I'm just having a tough, tough time here, guys. Like just what would you, what guidance would you give them, you know, based on some of these? Yeah. Posts. Yeah. Well, so the, the first one is acknowledgement because I think that's where we, we have to start by saying this is hard and then, and that's, it's okay to, it's okay to admit that it's okay to recognize that. Um, being resilient doesn't mean we downplay what's going on or pretend like we're not having problems when we are. In fact, I think it's the opposite. It's saying, this is a challenge. Well, how, how am I going to react? How am I going to respond? So the first, that's the first piece is just to say, okay, here's what I'm dealing with right now. Here's how I'm feeling. Here's how this situation is making me feel. And that's okay. Uh, and, and from there, we can then say, okay, now what am I going to do? Agency is about understanding that there is something we can do. There is always something we can do. Even if that something is as simple as changing how we look at something, because one of the, the pushbacks I get from folks often is, look, I'm in an environment where it's heavily bureaucratic. Um, you know, maybe I work for a government agency or whatever the case is. And I don't have a lot of autonomy over how I do things and how things operate. Like I'm a cog in this big machine. And I say, okay, well, maybe you don't have the decision-making power to change how things are done, but you have some level of autonomy over how you do what you do. And if nothing else, you have an ability to change how you think about what you do. And that, that matters, right? And, and again, this is not, I certainly didn't come up with this. Um, in fact, that, that probably comes from, for me, having read um, Victor Frankel's work and and talking about man's search for meaning and talking, he I remember him talking about, you know, in a concentration camp, figuring out inarguably, in like, is there a situation where you have less control and where the future is more dire? And yet figuring out a way that he he understood that he had still had the power of his own mind and his spirit. And as long as he could control those things and use those things, then he had some level of autonomy over this situation. And there was a certain something that that could not be taken from him. And I, and I think that's a really empowering thing for all of us to think about is where, what can I own and know that it can't be, can't be taken from me. Um, and, and it, it, it also, as you mentioned earlier, we have to be patient with ourselves. Right. And understand that it's not a, like, oh, I'm just going to read something or, or, you know, listen to Rexanne's podcast or read Mark's book and and a switch will be flipped and I'm going to just be able to do all of this instantly. Yeah, it's going to be all good. One action. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, 
it's a, it's like anything else. It's a series of skills that we can get better at. And that's that's an important flip side of that, which is I also encounter people who will say, well, I'm just not like that. Like, I'm not a, re- you're a resilient person. I'm not a, it's just a set of skills. It's just something that we learn and practice and we can get better at. I'm always getting better at it. At least I hope I am. And I get better at it by practicing it. So one of the things that you alluded to that I think is so critical is our children. And we will, oh, I hear people all the time complaining about kids today and man, they can't handle any kind of challenge. And, uh, you know, they expect trophies all the time. I was like, well, why are they like that? Because we raised them, <laughs> right? So whose fault is it? Uh, and and to instill those skills in kids comes about by intentionally teaching them and also allowing them to experience the obstacles and challenges that will allow them to practice those skills. And so when we think we're doing great things by shielding kids from failure and challenge, we're not, we're not right? I mean, that's the great, probably the greatest gift my parents gave me was that they let me fail. They let me try things. They let me fail. They let me suffer the consequences of my bad decisions for the most part. Uh, and because I think there's a certain amount of those things that you just learn by trial and error and um, academically learning them is not necessarily going to get them all yeah. the way in. Real life university, right? Like when, you know, you, 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 you know, you fall down, you know, you skin your knee and then they go, oh, well, how did that happen? <laughs> Instead of trying to make it better for you. And I think that's unfortunately in, in the time that we're in, um, that too much helicoptering, right? People aren't allowing kids to sit with it and, and really reflect, well, if I did this and this happened, what maybe what action could I, you know, or what perspective might I kind of mm. think because parents are too busy making it better. And I think, you know, um, a bit of having them sit with it means that you can't bail them out because you want them to learn lessons. But a lot of people are too busy trying to make nice or make better because I don't want kids to go through what I went through. But really, there's a lot. Resilience is formed from your mistakes. And we're all going to make mistakes, you know, and I make them often until we die. And that continues to make us build as, as you know, as people, right? As part of families, as part of communities, those yeah. types of things. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, I, I say to folks, look, I hope you read this book, but ultimately it will only do you as much good as you then implement and, and practice and see how it fits into your day-to-day life because to know it and to do it are different and so we have to we have to practice this stuff we have to do it over and over again and um you know it's interesting i just did an event last week for um university recruiters and we had a conversation afterwards i said i i actually asked it was the vp academic at the university who was there and i said is it i'm hearing these stories about like parents going into the admission interview with their with their kids and or arguing with the admission staff afterwards about why their kid didn't get in, but they really should have, and you made a mistake. And is any of that true? And he said, it's all true and it's worse than you have heard. Um, and and so what, right? And so what is that teaching our kids, right? It's, it's, we're, we think we're helping, but ultimately we're, I think, handicapping them because we're not allowing them to develop the tools they're going to need to deal with the adversity that is inevitable in all of our lives. 
Absolutely. And I, I um, worked in uh, executive uh, health and wellness and the, some of the companies I managed, like let's say it's a law firm. And then the, let's say that Arkling kid wants to get into the law firm and doesn't get in. So I had parents calling the HR manager of the law firm. <laughs> and I'm like, this can't be happening, but it, it was happening. We were seeing it across Canada, you know, unfortunately. Um, so then what skills are you actually, you know, teaching or allowing that young adult to learn because you're taking over. These are things we all were clueless when we were 20 something and trying to figure yeah. it out in the world. Right. But I think, you know, that you're right. That pendulum swing has gone too far. and We need to kind of guide people to get back to the basics of, of learning to cope. And when you fall down, what are you going to do? Yeah. And, and you're right. I like that idea of pendulum swing. Cause it's not, it's not to say, you know, let's make our kids life difficult on purpose, but can we, can we support them by being there afterwards to help them debrief it and, and learn from it instead of trying to prevent the adversity from happening in the, in the first place. Um, cause at some point, at some point, we're not going to be there to do that for them. And it's better to learn the skills when the stakes are lower. <laughs> I'd rather have my kid learn the consequences of not working hard by failing the test in grade six than getting fired from their job later on, for example, right? So let's just shift a little bit. I know we're almost at time, but um, with companies that might call you in to either do training or speaking, right? And let's say they say that, you know, um, our employees don't cope so well. <laughs> you know, they're always making a big thing about little things. And um, how do you kind of, when you're having those initial conversations with them, what, what kind of things are you, what kind of discussions might you be having with leadership about what their needs are in reference to the kind of the umbrella of resilience? Do you do, do kind of overall a strategic kind of um, overview on the organization or how do you kind of approach maybe calls like that from this, you know, the head of HRO? Mm -hmm. Well, and so first of all, that's, that's exactly why I get called is, is they say things like that. They say, look, the, we're going through major changes and people are not adjusting well, mm -hmm. um, or people are making a lot of excuses uh, or they're just not performing up to what we know they're capable of doing. Um, I say, ironically, COVID uh, was a great blessing to my business because it 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 revealed, I think, I think a lot of things that were already there and just amplified them uh, and or sped them up. But in many ways, this is change management stuff, right? It's saying, okay, how do how do we ad effectively adapt to new and changing environments? And that's again one of the guideposts is about being adaptable. Mm. And I would submit that adaptability, resilience slash adaptability is going to be the most critical skill of the next hundred years. Like the pace of change is not slowing, it's getting faster. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to remain relevant, useful in your organization, you're going to need to be adaptable. The, the days of saying, this is what I do. This is who I work for. This is what I do. And I'm going to keep working for this company and doing these things for 40 years and then I'll retire, it, it doesn't exist anymore, right? Like those days are over. And so we have to be continuous learners. We have to be flexible. We have to be willing to try new things. 
we have to be willing to understand that what solved today's problem might not solve tomorrow's problem all of those things and and the good news is i think we're all capable of that but we have to believe that we are agency and then and then practice it absolutely i completely agree with you so mark i know we're at time so why don't you share with people um, where they can get the book and also where they can get a hold of you, whether they want to find out your coaching or your training or you coming to speak at an event at their company. Thanks so much for that. Uh, so the book, is, uh, the easiest place to find the book is the resilienceroadmapbook.com. And you can find out all about me at markblack.ca because we're Canadian and some gentleman owns markblack.com in the US and he won't sell it to me. So, so it's markblack.ca, <laughs> but the book is the resiliencerobmac.com. You'll find the book on my website as well though, but, but uh, that's where the book is, the link directly to the book. Um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, it's a, as you know, it's a great privilege to get to do what we do and to be able to go into organizations and hopefully help them to be more productive, more effective, and to help their people to, to find greater satisfaction and fulfillment in what they do um yeah be a play it would be a pleasure for me to to do that so what an inspiration mark just listening to your story so what am i taking away you know i think what i like the most about what mark said was is it's not about the definition that we hear out there but it's really learning from each experience and saying what can i do better or differently the next time and we're all going to go through a lot of things unfortunately or fortunately that is the part of being human mm. it is life individually we make up companies we make up communities we are part of our families take that with you and for anyone that um what have i been up to i've just launched my book ror return on relationships where i talk to leaders about their capacity to be connected to themselves to more effectively lead uh, their teams. So if you're interested in um, getting a copy, you can go to Amazon or you can go to my website, roxandurhodge.com. And again, Mark, thanks again for your time. And for everybody, thanks for hanging out with us. And we'll talk to you again next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhaj.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.